The Trek Files, Season 7, Episode 17, Star Trek Promos. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Welcome back, Star Trek fans. Welcome to this Trek Files, which, yes, I promised is a part two. We're going to resume our conversation with our great guest, Don Beck, who was not just a witness to, but participant in. And the reason for a lot of uh, the success that Star Trek had, including kicking off the next generation, and in ways that don't get talked about. So look, this week, we do have some documents. Check out right there at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Here's a little sample of that of, uh, of that document, but check it out for yourself and then come right back and we'll resume this incredible conversation with Don Beck. Wanted to tell you again how much I admired the job you did on Star Trek Saga and additionally how much I appreciate the way you treated me in it. It was expected, of course, to have my mother highly complimentary about anything concerning her son, whether you put it together in good style or not. What has impressed me is the number of people who are rooting for neither me nor Star Trek to say highly complimentary things about your work on it. All right. Well, that's, that's quite a letter. Don... Thank you so much for coming back. Don Beck, everybody, who was a writer, producer, director, worked in promotion, ad sales, and a lot of actual creative thought, documentaries, preview reels, so much of what Star Trek was all about uh, in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, and even a big part of even bringing that story back to us. And Don, we were just on the cusp of crossing the T's and dotting the I's here. This incredible force of nature, Lucy Solhani, uh, putting this together on the syndication side, which was the uphill challenge, and you were right there at the crossroads making it work in a way that, what, it all, it all depended on you, whether there'd be a next generation or not, it's starting to sound like. Well, thank you for that. I, I, guess, I, I guess I should hire you as my PR special. That was brilliantly done, Larry. Uh, can I have a copy of that, by the way? Um, you have to understand something. Lucy Solhaney was the first president uh, at Paramount, and her title was she 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 was president of Paramount Domestic Television. She was responsible for Entertainment Tonight, the Arsenio Hall Show, Hard Copy, and of course Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah. So those were big, big, big money makers mm-hmm. for Paramount back in the day and stuff. And she was the only female executive at the time, and she never liked to be referred to as that. She just liked to be referred to as Lucy, uh, correctly spelled. Uh, in any event, um, so where we left off was, so she said, so go, here's your budget, and go shoot all this stuff and come back to me sooner and, than later. And again, the challenge here was you're going to sell a whole new series, a whole new Star Trek with nothing of the new show. It's a year away from being conceived, much less film, cast, shot. So you're using old footage from the original series to sell a show to local stations who had to buy it. It wasn't network many of whom lost money on the original series. That's that, was cr- your, that was your charge. That's, that's, that's nothing, right? That's a <laughs> Absolutely, Larry. Nothing existed. So I had to yeah. make stuff up. Uh, and so I went about my business. I did all the interviews. 
And then I think yeah. that weekend, or maybe a week later, while the film was being processed, it was back in the day, it wasn't like instant, like tape now. It had to be filmed, had to be processed, it had to be sunk right. up, and it had to be prepared for editing. So I decided I was going to go down to La Costa, a golf course resort mm-hmm. that's near, that's south of Los Angeles, near San Diego, North San Diego County. On the coast. And I'm, yes, and I'm going to play golf. And La Costa at the time had a lot of members that were in the in- industry. And so I go out there. I was a new member. I was a crappy golfer. <laughs> so I go to the starter and he says, uh, you're a single Mr. Beck. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I got a, I've got a foursome going out. And it's uh, Mel Harris, who I knew from Paramount. I said, oh, I know him. And it's Mr. Roddenberry, Star Trek fame, and whoever those fourth ones. I said, great. Now I'm really shaking in my boots. I was in my 30s, <laughs> crappy golfer, just starting in the business. I want to meet all these guys, so I go out and play golf with these guys. Now, the good news was Mel Harris was not a very good golfer. I wasn't a very good golfer. The fourth that we had was not a very good golfer. It was Gene, who was horrendous as a golfer. <laughs> <laughs> we were just we were just hacking it up. And at that time at La Costa, you had to take caddies. And I'm telling you, these caddies were looking at each other and they were going, oh, my God, this is going to be a long round of golf here. <laughs> so anyhow, we get to whatever hole we get to and we got to tee off and there's a restroom there and and whatever. And I go do my business, take care of business. And coming out of the restroom is Gene. And he says, oh, I remember you two weeks, so we did an interview. How'd the interview go? I said, I went great. You were fantastic. And if you've seen any of the Yellow interview, it's one of the best mm-hmm. interviews I've ever done. He was brilliant. And he looked great. God, God bless him. Knock on wood before he got ill. And so he was great. And he knew what to wear to make himself great. That's what he knew about the camera. You know, yellow, he looked beautiful in it. And uh, in any event, so uh, I said, well, it's going good. Uh, next week, I'm going to go in and I'm going to start editing. And I said, oh, good luck with that. If I can be of any help, blah, blah, blah. He says, you want to smoke a joint? <laughs> and I go, oh, my God, I'm going to smoke a joint with Gene Roddenberry? <laughs> I go, well, I, I, maybe at this point it'll help my golf game because nothing else is helping my golf game. <laughs> why not? I, why not? I changed gloves. I had a beer. I had a hot dog. Nothing was working. So I said, sure. So I took a couple of hits, blah, 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 blah. I go to tee off and do what I'm going to do. And Mr. Harris teed off. Of course, he didn't ask Mel Harris if he wanted to join. And then the other guy I didn't want. So I did it. And actually, I hit the ball pretty good. And then I look around. And I go, where's Mr. Roddenberry? Because everybody is Mr. This or Mr. That, Mr. Roddenberry, you know, very uptight club. He goes, oh, he's done for the day. I said, well, where'd he go? And he points around. He says, up there. And I see Gene walking up the hill. I said, where is he going? He says, oh, he's got a house there. (laughs) And at the eighth (laughs) hole, the ninth hole, whatever it was, it's Gene. He turns around. He gives me a little wave. You know, like, see you later. Okay, whatever. So we finished a round of golf without Gene. And um, that was, you know, I saw him a few times after the fact. But that was that was my encounter, smoking a joint with Gene. And, you know, we finished a round of golf. And Did that it was improve little, your score? Well, I lied. <laughs> but everybody okay. lies at golf, right? <laughs> everybody lies at golf and sex and how many miles per hour you get in your car. But um, no, so I finished around the golf and that was the end. I never played with Gene again. And then, of course, I, after the fact, I knew that he had a house there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that was that story. 
So that brings me back to... Um, well, the film. The film came back from the lab. You got to use it, right? All yes. the interviews, all the fresh interviews. So, yeah. so that, that, yes. So that brings me back to the next week. I go in. I look at the footage. I take my notes. I start cutting things together to a four or five, six-minute sales presentation. Transfer it to three-quarter inch. This was before editing as we know it on three-quarter inch, which sounds like a thousand years ago, but the industry has changed. I was a t- I go back to the film day when I was a film editor, and I, then I went to the two-inch days, and I was cutting two-inch with a razor blade, if you can believe that. And I was also part of when ABC transitioned to cutting offline on three-quarter inch. And now, of course— you know, one inch in digital, now everything's done on computers. But in any event, I digress. So I go back, I cut this thing together. I call Meryl Cohen and I go, uh, so I'm ready to show this to someone. You want to see it? She goes, no. I said, why don't, don't you want to see it before I show it to Lucy? She goes, Lucy would kill me. <laughs> I go, really? She goes, no, you got to show it to Lucy all by yourself. Are you going to be there? Goes, no. I go, okay, whatever. So and Merle had been for those who didn't hear the first first episode we had you uh, Merle was in charge of uh, yeah Merle Cohn was I don't know exactly what her title was it could have been vice president of advertising and promotion for uh, Paramount Domestic Television she was brilliant at 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 being a marketing advertising person. promoting and marketing the syndicated slate that they were the selling. syndicated shows yeah, yeah that's what she was good at and and her her second in command was Tom Connor. And the two of them together really knew what they were doing, and they knew how to deal with creative types like myself to be able to, this is what we want, this is your budget, go do it and come back sooner than later. That was pretty much their mantra. In this particular case, I was shocked. Like, I really didn't want to go see Lucy Solhaney by myself. I really wanted someone to look at it, and she could, we don't want to look at it. Go show it to Lucy by yourself. And to quote another Desilu property that became Paramount Gold, you're really on an impossible mission here. Yes, I was an impossible mission. That's right. And, um, you know, what was interesting about that at the time was um, there was a lot of people who tried to have their fingers in the pie. People like Herb Solo, who was president of Desilu, who, uh, you know, helped sell it to NBC, right. along with along with uh, uh, Lucy, the original Lucy. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, I guess Herb's claim to fame was he told... Uh, uh, Gene to not have the tail on um, on Spock or something like that. I mean, that was his big claim to fame. I don't know if that was true or not. But inside Star Trek was almost a hatchet shot, but that's a story for another time. In any event, so I call Lucy's secretary and I set up a time, go in there. It was on three-quarter inch. I go into her office. No one's there. No sales guys, just Lucy and I. And I'm going, I don't know if this is good or I don't know if this is bad. She says, you got the tape? She doesn't ask me nothing. She didn't ask me to see a script on the tape, which usually I would provide. Throw it in. She looks at it. She turns to me and she says, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Don't change a frame. Now, the reality is I was used to people, especially at the studio, like Diller and Eisner and Tartikoff changing stuff. Mm. clients always change stuff sometimes just to change stuff right so i'm going oh this is great news so she says stay right here you're not going to go coach soccer are you i said no it's 11 o'clock in the morning i'm fine (laughs) she calls in all of her sales guys 
Mel Harris was one of the guys. Mel Harris was, he was in an interesting position. I don't know exactly what his title was, but he had a lot to do with research. Actually, his name was Dr. Mel Harris. And I don't know what, his, what he had a PhD in or whatever. So they call in the salespeople. He goes, look at this tape. Now, these sales guys, let me stop for a moment, pause for a moment. Back in the day, actually, what happened was salesmen went out with cases printed material and sales presentations to their various regional uh, um, sales force around the country and say, Mm -hmm. this is what Paramount Domestic Television is bringing out. The various tapes and how it was going to be positioned. The they would show that to the station manager. The station manager signed off with it. These sales guys, after playing golf and having double martinis like madmen, would sometime during that trip, that day or the next day, they would meet with the, with the owner of the station group. He goes, so-and-so, the station manager signed off on this. He loves what we're bringing. And the guy would look at the table and say, that's great. How much? And at the end of the day, no matter how great that tape might have been, Unless that salesman could make a deal for that particular show with the owner, it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. The pressure was on. They needed about 65% of the country. So we need two-thirds of the potential eyeballs in the country to be pre-signed before anything would be done with developing the show. That's correct. If, they, if the money wasn't there via the clearance, as it's called, 65% mm-hmm. of the country, they're not going to get a combination of local advertising and national advertising, in which case the money's not there. You can't produce a show without the money. So, so we, we talk about Next Generation being a revolution in, in creating its own syndicated network, so to speak. This is what we're talking about. They've got to get enough people on board to make it worthwhile out of the gate. We well, can't make it and then hope that we sell it and pay for it. Well, at that time... It was first-run syndication. You, when you have shows like Entertainment Tonight and, and Arsenio Hall and hard copy, newsy-type shows, relatively easy to sell, relatively easy. When you have a first-run dramatic show like Star Trek that a lot of these station groups still had blood on their hands, in other words, they still lost money for the show, they were not happy with Tough guys. sell. Yeah. That's a tough sell. <laughs> tough crowd. And yet it wasn't even cast yet. So they didn't know who is it, right? What are they looking like? What are they going to be? And of course, you know, again, to digress a moment, when, when Gene was told, here's our guy, this bald headed this Englishman who wants to play the next character, he wants to play the next captain. He went, oh, no, 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 no. And then that's another story. Right, and right, right. That came to be, obviously he was overruled, but that's how that tape came to be. So she calls in all these sales guys. She calls in Mel Harris. I'm standing in the corner like, oh, God, I'm going to have a heart attack because Lucy loves it. But who knows what these guys are going to love? They put the tape in. They run the tape. Crickets. <laughs> Lucy's looking around at all these guys. Well, what's your comment? Oh, I don't know, Lucy. Uh, this is like a tough sell. And this guy says what he's going to say. And the other guy says what he's going to say. And Mel Harris goes. That'll work. Mel Harris was a man of very, very small and short words. And Lucy t- turns to me and goes, that's it. It's done. Lock it up. 
<laughs> I couldn't get out <laughs> of that room from fast enough. I couldn't find the button to eject the tape on the three-quarter inch machine. I said, oh, please, God, let me get out of here. I kept pushing the button. I was pushing the, the record button instead of the eject button. If you know about a top-loading three-quarter inch machine back in the day, the Sony, I kept pushing it. The guy goes, why don't you push the eject button? I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I pushed the eject button, took my tape, tick, took the box, and ran out of that room, literally. Well, did it work, Don? Did they sell the show? Well, it's an interesting proposition. That's a yes and a maybe. They did sell the show. You know what the bottom line was. But what happened was the tape went out into the field with these sales guys. It wasn't a slam dunk. And I don't know what percentage of what it is they sold, but they sold enough I think actually they sold under the 65% and Paramount either cut the budget or Paramount twisted the arm. Believe it or not, Paramount had a hard sell themselves selling this, this show to the Paramount station group. Their own, own, their owned and operated. That's stations. right. Now, yeah. I don't know how many they had at the time. Could have been a half dozen, could have been a dozen. I'm not quite sure. But that wasn't a slam dunk. But somehow... They eked it out over the line, and they got themselves the clearance they needed, and uh, the show went on to be history. Well, I mean, we've got we've rescued a list of the stations here. Uh, they've got the top, I don't know, thirty here, but they're showing what these stations did for ratings a year earlier, like October nineteen eighty six, and then October eighty seven. So they're comparing year to year, and WPIX in New York is here. They're fifty percent over the year before. LA's uh, KCOP is up forty five percent. Uh, the Chicago station, WPRW, is up 300% over the year. So all these stations are – that's, that's what they got to crow about. We had John Wentworth on a few episodes back talking about what they were able to go out and talk about how big those ratings were. But all those stations and station the mom and pops and the groups, like we mentioned, including <laughs> the owned and operateds uh, that you're just saying, all had to be convinced to get there. And your tape – was the secret sauce that gave those guys something to cling to at a time when there was nothing to show of the new show. It's a mix of, a mix of fresh interviews and 20-year-old Star Trek episodes. That's amazing, John, Don. Yeah, that's basically what it was. And that, that tape, somehow, I have a, tape, a copy of it somewhere. Uh, that was a really, really excellent sales presentation because it positioned a show that didn't exist that was just resting on its laurels exactly. on a show that wasn't that successful in a show that was on network television versus first-run syndication. A sequel, science fiction, syndicated show, which was a hard sell up and down the line for everybody. So without doing that, without clearing that, um, so that set you up to, uh, we're looking at the document this week, which is a thank you letter from Gene, which is an awesome letter, but that's actually from a year later very quickly. You you had this skill in assembling and translated that into making these TV, which you'd been doing, TV shows and documentaries. But just in brief, I remember that special. Um, but you said that that was really uh, kind of a, a plug against the low ratings that were sagging at the end of the first season. Well, it's not only that, but there's also something to be considered here. Um, at the time, unlike network television, um, you have a show that you just articulated was was those three elements, which was a show that was a sequel. It wasn't. It was new. It wasn't. It was un, un, unresolved whether or not the show was going to work mm -hmm. in syndication versus network. And so I was in charge of all the on-air advertising. I was still an outside supplier to Paramount. I would supply Paramount with the promos, 
and I would supply, and those promos would be run by the stations. And a, a little secret was that some of these stations weren't running the promos. So there was a company that, that had a device called Promo Cop. <laughs> uh-huh. It was brilliant that the stations had to use, and that what that Promo Cop did was track the advertising, the promos, the spots, mostly 30-second spots that were run at the time. Because put yourself in the position of a station owner. And we're talking about next week on Star Trek with Ernie Anderson and all of that, yeah, right? Ernie Anderson, yeah. right? Ernie Anderson, may rest in peace. He was, he was the voice of Star Trek. Yeah, on Star Trek. Oh, that was a good imitation. Of it him, was. Right? They wouldn't run the spots that Paramount paid me a handsome price to provide, and not just one spot, but packages of spots. Promo Cop tracked the spots. If you were a station owner, to tell you the truth, you'd look the other way. You didn't want to run a 30-second promo because you weren't getting paid right, for it. Right. You'd rather run a 30-second promo for Joe's Barbecue <laughs> or Johnny's Used Car Salesman. Anything other than the promo that that indirectly. It's like running a PSA. That's it's, right. Yeah, no, no like revenue. PSA. So that came to a halt because Paramount really forced them to run these spots with this device called Promo Cop. So yeah, so at the end of the year, there were a lot of stations that were very successful, as you just mentioned. And there were some stations that weren't doing so well. And there was talk about, is it going to go for the second year or not? And so Paramount, Lucy said to me, okay, genius. She used to call me genius. That was a joke between us you know she knew i was from detroit so she said, all the geniuses come from detroit right i go right she said okay that's my name for you okay genius uh we want you to do a an hour television show uh basically to plug star trek mm. okay well that's gonna be fine how you know they're gonna run it she goes they're gonna run it because i'm gonna tell them they're gonna run it and if you got a call from lucy Solhaney and you were the station manager you'd say you're gonna run this or you're not gonna get entertainment tonight or the arsenio hall show and those two shows were huge hugely popular and blockbuster shows and making stations a lot of money so paramount twisted their arm a little bit because paramount was in this for the long game mm -hmm. they wanted star trek next generation to keep going and going and but going. they had the seven-year amortized budget schedule set up that was part of the the bean counter plan for the whole thing so That's yeah right. it had to go seven absolutely right it had to go seven so they were struggling to get to year two so in any event uh, I do the Star Trek saga, and now I hadn't seen Gene, and I hadn't played golf with him, and I had certainly hadn't smoked a joint with him. Uh, and um, uh, he sends me this beautiful letter out of the blue. Now, up until that time, there was no reason really to interview Gene again because this, the show was taking on its own life. I had interviewed Rick mm -hmm. Berman, who was really the, the de facto uh, showrunner, along with Pillar and the rest of those individuals mm -hmm. that you know of. Uh, and so... Like I say, I didn't have that much contact with Gene, maybe a convention here or there, and he sends me this beautiful letter out of the blue. And he copied on there um, uh, John Symes, who was kind of Paramount's, he was Paramount's look-see out of Pike's office to make sure he worked for, he worked for the network side, not for the domestic television side. So that was this interesting relationship between the domestic side and the network mm -hmm. side. So John Pike still kind of watched that show. Uh, 
her, his relationship with Lucy, I don't know too much about it one way or the other. I'm still actually friends with John Pike, who's a wonderful guy, a wonderful producer, smart guy, fantastic executive. And so I think he had John Symes's, you know, go look, make sure this show is doing right and make sure June, Gene is doing it creatively and things are going on. So that was John's, uh, that was John's take on Anyways, you read the letter, the letter's up. You can see the beautiful letter he wrote me. That's incredible. That's incredible. Don, listen, I mean, there are so many, so many years, so many, the, the future series. You were involved with DS9 and Voyager on down the line, UPN coming. We can't cram it all into one episode. We're trying here apparently today. But can you please come back and, and visit us again? And we'll talk some more about this, this behind the scenes world that still affected what all Star Trek fans, uh, it affected the productions they wound up seeing. Would you come back? Sure, it's my pleasure. Let me know when. Okay, Don, thanks so much. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment, and please do, are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Uh, that's me at larrynemachek.com. Now, look, that's where you can link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our tea Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.